RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. My guest today is the designer, artist and writer Christoph Neumann. He rose to fame in the early noughties when he moved from Germany to New York City, where he quickly garnered work from the New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, Wired and the New York Times magazine. His varied style and unpredictable approach to his images quickly captured people's attention and he became a regular with weekly observations on life and New York City via his Sunday Sketches series, where he would take everyday objects and transform them into something unexpected. He famously participated in the New York Marathon, where he live-streamed 46 sketches over the 26-mile run, which took him six hours. At the heart of Christoph's work is its engagement through lateral thinking, which creates surprise and entertainment. This approach only came about through his intense rigour during his six years of honing his lifelong talent for drawing at the Academy of Fine Art in Stuttgart, in particular under the tuition of the great German illustrator Heinz Entelmann. Through him, Christoph found a new cerebral additive, conceptual thinking, which he refers to as his armour of craft. So join me now to hear about this and much more in this fascinating chat recorded remotely with me in Dorset in the UK and Christoph at his home in Berlin, Germany. I started our conversation by asking Christoph what his daily routine was. First of all, a very strict routine. Uh, and second of all, an early routine. So I usually I get up at 7, 7.15. Fortunately, still have some kids at home, so I enjoy kind of getting up with them. Breakfast, and usually I do some sort of exercise at 8, from 8 to 8.45, 9. Either go for a run or on an elliptical or something. My studio is very close to where I live, so if it wasn't for really conscious exercise, I probably would not move at all during the day. Um, so I, I try to get that out of the system, and then it's yeah, it's straight to the desk, and pretty much nine to six, sometimes a little later with a brief lunch break. And this is pretty much every Monday through Friday. Weekends, I tend to kind of come in into the studio as well. There was a time when the kids were small where I really tried to very do a clean cut, not go into work at the weekends at all. Now that there's no more playground time necessary, I, I love the weekends for kind of like less, not less focused work, but less uh, kind of assignment driven work. I understand. It's your, so it's your free creative time rather than being um, pinned to the post with a, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I noticed you just mentioned your children. We'll talk about them later, but let's talk about your childhood. So let's go back to when you were born, which was December 1970. And what was going on at that time was Willy uh, uh, Brandt was chancellor. It was the year the Beatles split up. It was the death of Elvis Presley. The anti-Vietnam War movement was going on. Watergate scandal was in the doing the rounds and the Cold War was still alive and kicking. Punk 
was emerging. And in the very month you were born, December, Black Sabbath were at the top of the German charts with Paranoid. Good, good. I had no idea about that, but it's... <laughs> It's like a nice, interesting picture to to think of, like living, like being born in that time. I know, yeah, it's it's quite important events in a funny sort of way. You were born in Weiblingen, um, I think is the pronunciation in West Germany. In close yes, Weiblingen. 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 Which is close to Stuttgart. And, exactly. And Weiblingen is also the home of the biggest chainsaw manufacturer. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> what do you, so tell me, what are your earliest memories of family life and, and uh, where you were living and so forth? Well, I guess like most people, I have like some short glimpses of like being three, four years old. Maybe there, there I had a bunch bed with my brother there was dark green that's somewhere uh some vacations uh, uh but these are really just postcards where you never really know is this something you actually remember or did you see a photo when you were a few years older and that just ingrained itself as or as a fake memory i do feel like anybody was like maybe abba was a thing that i remember listening to maybe when i was eight or nine yeah. but the kind of growing up that's Definitely much more the 80s than the 70s. I don't really have a cultural memory of the 70s. Whereas like the 80s from the, the music, the, the, uh, um, like Mad Magazine, remembering yeah. the first whatever World Cup or so. That's much more of an 80s, 80s based memory than, than 70s. What did you, what did your father do and um, mother? My mother is a physical therapist and coming from a very artistic family. My grandfather, who I unfortunately never met, he died a few years after I was born. He was a doctor, but he was painting and drawing a lot. So there was always a nice relation going to my grandmother's house, seeing his drawings. My father uh, was a civil engineer for traffic. Yeah. He uh, had a, a post in the city that I grew up with uh, in Ludwigsburg. And I have a huge, I love maps. I love subway systems. Yeah. Uh, and this is obviously, <laughs> rather obvious in my work. Yeah. And uh, there's a very, very strong connection to what my father did. And we bonded over that very, very strongly. What were your early school years like when you were at junior school? You must remember that. That's always quite a memorable event when you, you're left, your mother or your father leave you and you're suddenly in a strange I never, world. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I can say it was stunningly unremarkable. It was, I went to school and never, I never struggled in, sh in school. I don't think I really excelled in school. I just like went there and and it was perfectly fine. I mm -hmm. uh, don't think I was like very far up on the social, on the social ladder, which is always like a good, yeah. uh, uh, a good indicator for people to become artists because you then start focusing on sitting at your desk and drawing uh, to compensate. Is that what you did from a very, very young age? Draw? I did. I, 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 I'm, throughout my conscious life, I was drawing. I yeah. was, uh, my, my brother is 15 months older. So we're close to being, being twins really growing up mm -hmm. and. And my memory is we sit somewhere on the uh, on the dining room table or in our rooms and we draw and there was always a little bit of a competition going on and uh that that's always like during school during everything drawing was always like an essential part of life and i think when i was like 16 or 17 i started having a second desk where like i had my one desk for for school work and uh, eventually i had like a like a like a simple computer on it but at some point I realized I need a desk that's really only about drawing. So this, this drawing, art supplies, tons of paper, there was always a reality for, from whenever I can remember. When did you first get sort of vague inklings that this might be a path for you actually forever? 
uh, I think there was frankly never much of a doubt with my with my with my dad being an engineer at some point I talked to him about architecture and I thought that this might be maybe a little bit more of the same direction I don't know maybe I was 16 or 17 mm -hmm. um, and then he told me a little bit about what it would take to become an architect and I think the drawing the construction like this the, the mathematical aspect is something I would have very much enjoyed but uh, he told me that he would have to build models and uh, uh the third dimension was something I was never really good in. Not that I lacked the spatial thinking ability, but I lacked the patience. Like the moment you go into the, into the third dimension, you have to be patient with glues, with like making exact cuts and uh, prepping. And uh, I'm always impatient. I always want to see what I do right away. And it was really the making models part that kind of closed the path for architecture. And after two or three weeks, I was like, no, that's not happening. <laughs> And then I, I always knew, I always knew I wanted to be, uh, become an illustrator, except for I actually wanted to become a black and white illustrator. Right. And is that because of cartoons, uh, you know, no. political cartoons or anything? No, like because that? I hated colors, the, the physical aspect of colors, because I had felt to pens. And yeah, I had to, whatever, like pens you had, like eventually I even bought an airbrush not to do kind of like the kind of like airbrush art we we know yeah. but only to do flat colors and as a as a kid that's something i remember from a very early age you draw a house and the house has a red roof and you want to make it red and then you have to spell to pen and it's impossible to get a really nice clean even <laughs> red surface <laughs> so you didn't like the variation in color when you were yeah i just want red you wanted it just like a plain red or orange or green or whatever and there was no tool i didn't with my first money i started buying these margaries magic markers uh for like ridiculous fortune not even with these could you really do clean color and that was i remember the first time opening photoshop when i was in my early 20s and uh -oh. one click you got and you just have plain color it's red you want orange you do orange you want 20 percent magenta less one click and it was such a revelation and that you know, i always loved color of course but the problem was always that it's not controllable in a way that black ink is you, know, you can do it like a beautiful you can do a pencil sketch and then you can ink it in and even as a 10 year old you can do a perfect black and white drawing so really, you, the, the digital age was perfect for you because you could absolutely have, wonderful. You could yeah. have perfection. Yes, and it, and editability. That's another thing with color that you could really say that you, uh, you go from black to, uh, black to blue to white to yellow. And that was something I always dreamed of. Another thing that was like when you uh, um, drawing yellow on green. Even when you have acrylic colors, it's not really. It never flows. And the did. This aspect of digital art is just incredible, that you can really freely use color straight from your imagination. Jumping forward just briefly on this topic, because it's interesting, this this seeming obsession with wanting beautiful flat colors, the, the same density, you often do the complete opposite these days. I mean, you, you even, you, you'll paint with coffee if, ne if necessary, if an idea is flowing in your head. And that's the most... <laughs> It's the complete opposite to the kind of flatness that you you want. So obviously you've ex you've not put yourself in a straitjacket in terms of that anymore. Looking at your work anyway, because it's no, such yeah. variation. No, no, it's actually quite the opposite. I've in the in the last couple of years, or this is something that I eventually I found uh, watercolors to be a, a, a beautiful medium where mm. the the unpredictability is actually 
right. wonderful. Yeah. It was more, it was more the, the, at the beginning when you're trying to learn to draw, yeah. it's, you want to master it and you want to kind of do a step forward. You, you constantly mess up and the idea of kind of going back and forth or planning something is, or at least for me was quite an obsession. And eventually, I got a little looser and I, I love the idea, especially in watercolor where when you have a thin brush, you can do a fairly precise stroke. Mm. However, once you add a little bit more water, it's all bets are off. And, and now I work when I do landscape drawings, I work with these very potent high pigment inks. Yeah. And when you go with a lot of water, it's really, it's an explosion where you have sometimes extremely little control, but I love like this, this mix of control and not control. Uh, but I think it was first I had to kind of put that deep of flat color to rest to really enjoy the the, the craziness of, of wet inks. Yes. Well, let's let's just wind back again. When did you actually, when you were in senior school, when did you, how did you transition or, or did you go to university? I know you went to the the uh, State Academy of Fine Arts in Stuttgart, but was there anything before that? No, I, I started drawing. I didn't had like some odd job, jobs for kind of friends and families. I would do a lot of portraits for, it was a time where, where the parents of friends would be turned 50. And I did a lot of portraits for 50th birthdays. I did a couple of dog portraits and it was like a beautiful way to make some, um, to make some money on the side. After school, I had to do social service, which I didn't want to do at all. I wanted to go straight to art school, but it was. What, what, what is that? Is that some? It's essentially at the time there was mandatory mandatory oh. military service oh, for right. um, yes. I think twelve or fourteen months, and yes. for you could basically you could refuse to do military service, and then you uh, were obliged to do social service. However, it was longer; it was an additional five months. And what did that entail? It was going cleaning, going uh, helping to care for elderly people, uh-huh. washing them, uh, yeah. doing chores and driving kids, uh, disabled kids and kids from very tough families who had learning disabilities and driving them to school. And it was complete. I I can't say I grew grew up in a total bubble. My mom being a physical therapist and having patients. So it wasn't that I lived in this kind of perfectly pampered world. But when you really deal with completely different life sets it was in in retrospect i'm so glad i had to do that because of course with 16 17 18 you are all about yourself it's natural and it's perfectly fine i think doing art is you, you spend a lot of time or basically i spend almost all the time at my desk thinking about my art like feeling sorry for myself if it doesn't work it's the nature of things and it's perfectly fine and to be forced for at least a year and a half to be in touch with other people seeing other people it, it definitely changed me and i'm very very yeah. glad i had to do that even though of course at the time if i could have chosen i would not have done it yeah i can i can imagine i mean that's interesting i think they have a similar thing in japan certainly they have this caring for an elder population, young people often are in the, you know, various institutions and places to help out. It seems to be a done thing over there. Well, let's move on to the State Academy of Arts in Stuttgart then, because you were taught by, you know, the great illustrator Heinz Endelmann, who, who of course, you know, I know from Twin Magazine because I, when Twin Magazine first appeared in the UK, in German, of course, you could only get it from a continental bookshop in Soho. And I would go down there, you know, religiously and buy it, which is very expensive, in order to be able to cut out the Schmelfette grotesque, because you couldn't get it here. (laughs) 
but I love the drawing. Heinz Endelman was, yeah. I, he was fantastic. And you got taught by him. It was an incredible, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, it was just a tough experience. Yeah. No, it was really, I mean, the, the, the school in Stuttgart is, is a fantastic school. It yeah. has amazing labs and everything. And for me, the most important part is so the first two years is, is something like, like base camp. Uh, base training mm -hmm. and for the first time in my life i could just spend the entire day with art before that it was always like in the afternoon in the evenings on the weekends and there it was just like nothing else i had like jobs on the side but the jobs on the side were the jobs on the side and the main job was going there to draw and the first year was just drawing from from uh, nude models yeah. uh, drawing objects yeah. uh, learning painting techniques the second year was photography typography animation so it was really Just oh. spending the entire time learning every single aspect of art, really the craft of it. And it felt so liberating to finally not kind of having that as the second element in your life, but really as the prime element. And there was, I also remember there was a time where I was in terms of like technical drawing for maybe like half a year or so, I could do a very proper portrait of people. You could have set somebody in front of me and I could have done Like a, like in half an hour, a very like decent uh, pencil uh, portrait. Yeah. Once you stop practicing, it kind of, it goes away. But when I look back at the drawings, some of the, the kind of like model drawings or, or portraits, I was like, wow, that's something I couldn't do today. And they're kind of like technically quite all right. And then after these two years, you decide which kind of like masterclass you attend. And mm -hmm. there was one for uh, newspaper design, one for graphic design, books and typography and an illustration class. And I knew I would go to the illustration class. It was a little bit outside of the main campus and it was m almost a little bit like a, like a planet. Like Like a, like a slightly separate planet with a very like tight group of uh, of students and i went there and i um at the time i really focused on drawing realistically drawing very kind of like showing with every drawing like demonstrating skill that for mm -hmm. me was the essence of um of art and i remember like showing heinz Edelman my my work and i remember his r raised eyebrows and it was like well Yeah, that's going to be in, something like along the lines of like, that's going to be interesting. If that's the kind of work you want to do, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and, and this is something I credit myself with because he talked about ideas and concepts and bad drawing that's sometimes necessary. And I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. I really just, and, and I tried and I had spent my entire life with drawing, with art, and I, he was talking about something that I just couldn't grasp. You mean he was talking more about a sort of a naivety, and a sort of conscious naivety in drawing rather yeah. than being, you know, totally craft-based and, you know, exact. Is, is that what you mean? Well, the, the thing as I like eventually realized was that if I would say I was a pianist, like a classically trained pianist yeah. who tries to play a whatever Tchaikovsky piano concert, incredibly demanding and really showing off like how fast my fingers move. And there's somebody who says, well, if there's Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan needs a guitar that maybe is slightly out of tune <laughs> and yeah. that sometimes an out of tune guitar is the perfect instrument for a certain kind of song. Yeah. And the idea, at least how I eventually grasped it was that as an artist, I want to be a mu musician yeah. who can make music and that you start with the with the idea of the music want to, uh, you want to do and then you pick the instrument sometimes you need the full orchestra with like a 300 piece brass section and sometimes you need a broken a stick yeah. and you just like knock the stick on a rock and that sometimes is all the rhythm and all the music that you need um, but you don't start with 
how can I demonstrate my skill at the piano for every single second uh, that people listen to me? This was a completely novel idea for me. That it wasn't about bad drawing, but it was about really having the concept first and then choosing the style, choosing the medium and holding back your skill sometimes being a much more powerful angle to tell a story. Otherwise, you overwhelm the viewer. And for me, eventually also realizing that I had always seen art, maybe out of insecurity, as a way to show people what I can, as opposed to saying the art is really for the audience. The audience is supposed to laugh or cry or enjoy themselves. That this is the purpose of art, is to create a reaction with the audience and that you do whatever it takes to do that. And sometimes less, in fact, is more. So how did you then transition from the rigor of what you'd been doing, uh, which obviously when you're doing something a lot, constantly, like you mentioned, um, classical musicians who get into a particular way and then find it to be, they find it to be very difficult to be free. They can't, they can't just ad lib. They can't just go, or very few, because they're, they're kind of in this box, box of perfection. So how did you rid yourself of all of that work you must have put in over those years, getting beautiful portrait drawings done and so forth, to suddenly discover that actually the best thing to do is to just completely loosen up and pull back a bit and see what happens? Well, that's the thing. It wasn't about loosening up. And that was the difficult thing, that I worked probably even more than before, because I was really, I wanted to, I know that he was a legend. Mm. And if he says there's something there that you don't get, that really poked me in a, in a, in a good way. And, I, and so I went, I just produced a lot of work. He would look at it. I mean, sometimes I, we had this kind of letter sized paper that was kind of like the form everybody used. And I would basically take a ream of paper, kind of like a, a photocopy paper and do like a hundred sketches, 200 sketches. And then he would come and go through the sketches, go like, no, 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 this is bad. No, no, no. Oh, this one's okay. And I had absolutely no idea why he picked that one really? over the other ones. And next week, again, like I would do like another like 20, 30, 50, 100 drawings. Again, same thing. And sometimes now he might pick three or four. And through that process, which definitely lasted a year, and I wasn't the only one. They were like, this is basically how we all work. Just producing an insane amount of drawings, concepts, like using one element, like using one uh, metaphor, trying to do a lot of variations on it. And then after like a half a year, a year, it slowly dawned on me and I got a little bit better at predicting. I was like, oh yeah, this is what it's about. And then at some point it's like the same way when you draw realistically where at the beginning you're just struggling and eventually you just grasp it a little bit more. It was in a way not loosening up. It was just learning to draw again, but with a different parameter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe in a way when you kind of compare it to music where it's not so much about loosening up, but maybe really focusing on rhythm or, fo or focusing on harmony. Mm which has as much to do with craft because you still have to control. Uh, when you do a, a series of loose drawings, you still want them in a consistent line weight, which mm, takes a lot of craft. It's not just like, oh, let it flow and make yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kind of sing from the heart is not at all. No, no, no. Uh, and, uh, and it was very interesting. And I'm, I'm very glad I took the time to, to, or to give myself that time. Mm. I think listeners should know that uh, Heinz Edelman uh, also was responsible for the Beatles animated film Yellow Submarine, which was 
quite revolutionary at the time, the drawings particularly. And, and he went on, I mean, he, he was, pro what sort of age was he when you, he was teaching you? He was, I think, like in the, in his six, maybe 60 yeah. when, when, yeah. when I started in the like mid, mid, mid 60s. And the difficult thing. The, the trying thing that all of our, our students, I think, experienced with him was that he would never say, oh, come on, you can do it. And uh, the, the, the kind of like encouraging you just to kind of to get you going. As far as that goes, he was not you know, like an art teacher who kind of mm -hmm. pushes you over uh, yeah. over the finish line. And of course, we all experience like doing art is doubt is a big element of it. Absolutely. And yes. he didn't see it, I think, as his role to take that doubt away from you. He would rather really put the finger in the wound. What he did, however, and this is something I think much more valuable, he really opened my eyes for, for art. Mm. At the beginning, I mean, I, I had art, like, uh, I majored in art history in, in high school or major, you know, so it was like, so of course I knew my art history. But I didn't like the 20th century modernism, what it meant, like to really look at what a Bridget Riley or what this art meant and how it really related to what I was doing was something that I had absolutely no clue. He really pushed us to, to read. We talked about kind of like literature and, and because, uh, um, It was still a graphic design course. So this relation from text to image, which is incredibly important in my opinion, uh, was something I didn't think about before. But it was never this idea that they can complement each other, that it's a very fine balance when even in a, in a New Yorker cartoon, like the best ones, it's perfect. Like the, the, the copy does exactly, the, fills the void that the, the drawing leaves open and vice versa. And the moment you, they fill the same area, it's a boring cartoon. So really using language, like the importance of language in, in, in design or even in illustration was something, it was not on my radar at all. And this was all I first even thought about these topics. Mm. When I came to the class and there, so I really, I owe uh, Heinz Edelmann so much in terms of all that because, yeah, it, it, all these thoughts didn't exist at all in my head. And of course, the, the other thing about uh, you go, going to a, an art academy is that you, you meet like-minded people. So did you, did you have a lot of good friends? It was, it was absolutely crucial. And, and even though uh, I know that without like the kind of like the input, kind of getting the ball rolling of intellectually and in, in terms of all these new topics, that was crucial. But then he would leave and then the students would sit there and say, like, what the hell was he talking about? And we would <laughs> discuss each other's work. It was also sitting in while he critiqued other people's work. Where you could learn so much when he would talk with people who worked in their final thesis and you could just sit there. And like this, I think, was maybe even more important than him talking about your work because you can really, you see their work more objectively mm. and you see more where the criticism goes and where, and so I think the the other students are maybe more crucial than the teacher. Right. And the constant exchange, we would discuss just like from morning to night, we show each other like our drawings. And I think one of the most important 
kind of like things you can do as an artist is just like you sit at your desk, you take your piece that you draw, you hold it up and ask people, what do you see? And I think this was like half the day. It's like everybody shows holds up their thing. It's like, what do you see? Because so often when a, when a drawing doesn't work, it's because you put out breadcrumbs and you want people to see a certain way, whether it's, you know, whether it's a joke or whether it's any kind of like conceptual piece. And often you think, you assume people see something else than what you do. And so constantly doing this test makes you much better at predicting what your what kind of reaction you're drawing yeah. um uh, creates with other people and the only way to learn it is to spend a lot of time with other people in a room and constantly talk about things show things look at things give feedback uh, receive feedback and that was i for me that was the essence of art school and i kept telling telling students i taught for for a few years in in new york and i kept telling students like you ha try to sit in the same room when you work and constantly do an exchange otherwise the whole point of art school i think in in, in my opinion it's it's not worth a, a fraction yeah if you're if you're if you're sitting by yourself yeah, I mean, it's a, a special community that you can learn from each other a, yes. a lot and yeah. uh, it sets you up from, for what you do next. And so how many years were you at, at the academy? It was six years, two, two a, for a year. Wow, and that was a hell of a long time. It was a hell of a long time. It was basically an automated uh, master's program. Oh, okay. So you kind of, you do yeah. your, your bachelor or whatever it's yeah. called now, uh, yeah, after yeah. four years, yeah. but it was never a question that I would stay there for six, which was also great because I really felt I could go deep. I never yeah. felt rushed. Yeah. And I definitely went through a lot of, I, I did a, an animation that was half a year of just animating. I did some projects. I worked a lot, but I, I did books. I really went all out and I never felt, oh, is they, they're going to rush me four weeks through one thing and another. I felt I could really learn things yeah. like from, from the ground up. And that, uh, that was an incredible privilege. So you, what year did you finally leave? Uh, 97, I did my diploma. And then you decided to up sticks and go across the, the ocean to New York. Yeah. I had, I had done uh, internships in New York. First, uh -huh. I wanted to go to, to London because ah. it's, there was a place where everybody was, uh, was I going was gonna, at the time. I was going to ask you that very thing. Why didn't you, why didn't you come to London? The, it was all two, happening. Yeah. For, for no, totally. Uh, for two reasons. The first one was the flights to, to America were as, <laughs> cheap at the time actually as they were to london so you might as well go there no and then i started looking at uh, uh the, the annuals that i had mm -hmm. and i realized that the work that really interested me in the in the in the illustration realm was all happening in new york yeah there was the conceptual political work you know, what you what you would see on the op-ed page of the new york times yeah uh the, kind of the covers of of newsweek time magazine new york times magazine the new yorker of course yeah and before that, I knew the people I liked, but I'd never really looked at the publications because in most annuals, you would only see the art and not really at the beginning. I really wouldn't look like who, who was the art director or who was publishing them. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is almost exclusively coming from New York. And then I saw that there was really like in a, in a five mile radius around Times Square, it was like that everything was happening there. And I decided to do an internship with, with an uh, illustrator, Paul Davis. There's of course the British, oh. the, the young, the young, the young British Paul Davis, who is a fantastic artist, but that's the, the more senior American Paul yes. Davis from, from Pushpin fame. Absolutely. And I interned, I interned with him. Um, Did you? Uh, for, for summer. 
And at the same time, I had also written a um, application for an internship at a design firm called Pentagram for Paula Scher. <laughs> and then she actually got back to me. And so the year after I went, uh, became an intern for, for Paula, which was a completely different thing. And of course, incredible to, as a student, all of a sudden I'm sitting at, at Pentagram and there's Michael Beirut and Woody Pirtle and you're having lunch with these absolute heroes. And, and, and the, you, you would have met Seymour Cross, of course, because of, course, of Paula. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that, what a great. No, it was really, you, it was, it was you, absolutely You wild. went to the right place. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and then even during the internships, like, uh, Paul introduced me to Fred Woodward of Rolling Stones. So I did my first ah, drawing for, right. uh, for Rolling Stone. Paula, uh, introduced me to Steve Heller, uh, at the book review. So I did my first drawings for the book review, but I went, I went back. It was very important for me to go back and really do my degree, even though it was, it was very tempting to just say, well, this is, this is fun. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to do my degree, but then so I went back for a year after the second internship, uh, ninety six, uh, and then ninety seven. I did my degree, and then, but basically a week later, I said, "I'm just going to give this New York thing a shot." Well, t tell me about that. How so? You'd you'd made some important connections already. So was did you find it fairly easy to slip into New York as a as a fully fledged illustrator now? I had done, I had this connection and there was, there was, there was fantastic. Uh, and I thought it was hard, but it, it worked out great. But in retrospect, I learned that it was really important that it worked out well because it was so insanely expensive. I realized I needed much, much more money than I thought at the beginning. I had saved up a little bit. I'd always worked on weekends in an ad agency. So I had saved up whatever, like two three grand or so yeah uh but you know that was that didn't it was kind of like the deposit for your for your apartment and that, that's gone and so i really i needed to kind of like hit the ground running but the beautiful thing at the time was it was a much more cohesive scene and what i didn't expect is I, you i would go to the times magazine and they would uh say oh there's this there's this guy nicholas blackman up there at op-ed you should see him and uh, then I would go to see Nicholas, who now is like one of my closest friends. Yeah. And he would say, "Oh, wait a minute! Like here, you should talk to, to you should talk to the New Yorker." <laughs> so even from one magazine to the others, yeah. art directors would recommend you from A to B. And also, like the second you had a drawing in the Times, other magazines would see it and they would call you. So this this idea of a printed piece as advertising really, really worked. And I don't see that working. I mean, that the industry has changed so dramatically. Uh, five times over since then oh yeah but at the time it was i think you had to be in new york there was absolutely no um uh no alternative unless you were i don't know saint -Pay. but other than that once you were in there it actually it it worked quite nicely it, it was a beautiful community yeah that's i think that's very evident in looking at your body of work and and uh you know starting with the very first new yorker magazine cover that you did on your wedding day or it appeared on your wedding the, day. The, 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 the publishing day is uh, there was on our wedding day that was really quite special yes. yeah that's you were very quickly being commissioned by all, all of those magazines so presumably you started to feel more confident and you felt that you could expand your approach to the various things you're doing not just an illustrator that uh, would be given a topic you were creating topics as well, weren't you? Very much. Yeah. At the beginning, I would be given topics or like that's the nature of editorial work that, of course, the article comes first. Yeah. However, the, the difference was that I would never, I would never be given a concept. 
Yeah. And often not even a style. So it was more, we have this thing we don't know what to do. This is really the craft of conceptual design that I felt that was my, that was my secret weapon. And not only for me, but also like for other people who went through the, through the same school with, with, with Edelman that we had learned. Yeah. You know, early I said, like, uh, in, in the first year of studying, I, I learned how to do a portrait, like a pencil portrait in the kind of like the later years of academy. I learned to do a decent, an, an unembarrassing idea on command. And this is something that's actually learnable. And in, in this kind of like high stakes, super high pressure deadline environment where I think my record was 45 minutes from getting a call to doing a drawing. Basically, you're, you're an emergency, emergency room doctor. You just yeah. like have to be able to get something that they can print. I, I hope that people also like my concepts and then, you know, like every once in a while you might be lucky and you create a drawing that ends up in an annual or so forth. But the bread and butter and the reason why I felt I was able to make a living was that art directors could call me and I could create stuff on command that solves their problem. Yeah. They, they're there, like they have a deadline in two hours or maybe a photo shoot went bust and like, oh God, now we have a page. What are we going to do? And they knew they could call me and I, they, that felt really good to have this, this craft to rely on and to not having to rely on inspiration or just like a, like a lucky moment, but being, being able to, to have the confidence to just say, I know I can get something decent out no matter what. Yeah, I watched the, the, the lovely f film that Netflix made with you where you were drawing a lot on camera, albeit very quickly, but nevertheless with great assurance, which comes from massive amount of experience and surety that you, you know exactly what you're doing. You were riding pretty damn high and you were very well known in the noughties. And just a little way into it, 2008, you, you, you decide to leave the bustle of New York and and return with your wife and three children to Germany. What was your reasoning for that? You've already described how wonderful it was and how connected it is. And, you know, everyone knows everyone else. So do you feel you got to a point where you felt completely secure or you needed to get away from that bustle? You know, well, I, I definitely, and I, I was never to this day, never fed up with New York in a sense of, I don't, I don't like this. And I definitely, also, and that was very important for me that it, uh, and it was something I discussed with my wife that we didn't want it to be a defensive move of like, Oh God, this is, this is getting too exhausting or also not doing it for the kids because we felt if we want to be mm. in New York, we'll even with all the insanity of schools and everything, we'll, we'll find a way to do it. When I, when I came to New York, coming from a middle class background, it was so wild and different and the way people thought and lived, it was so outrageously, diverse and unbelievable for me. And it was incredibly inspiring. And then once I actually lived there, and maybe that has something also to do with age, you know, like then it was like in my, in, in my mid thirties, I realized that life became more and more coded where with kids, it's like, oh, the kindergarten and then you have your eye on middle school and then you mm. people have three-year-olds and they're basically putting, putting them, them on the right path to college yeah uh, not only like which schools do they get in how do you finance this whole thing if yeah. you're insanely lucky financially then people might have a cottage upstate or so and then if they have a cottage upstate they talk about how to beat the traffic when they go out there on fridays and and everybody did that and this is like the lucky successful people yeah yeah, yeah. but all of a sudden i felt fewer and fewer insane life models around me. And the best measure of success would be if I can fit into that grid 
of the way people live there. And I felt that creatively that would be a problem to basically say, okay, now the path is in front of me and all I can do is check the boxes if I'm lucky. And at the same time, I also felt that, first of all, I had done this editorial thing so intensely for, at that point, like 10, 12 years. I wanted to do something else, but I also smelled that this golden time of editorial insanity of the early 2000s was coming to an end. And I definitely had the feeling that I couldn't, I had to be in a different environment to change. Because moving changes your head. If you change your environment, it, like, it messes your entire core. And I felt that moving would be a good thing to even remember what I would do if I wasn't under a deadline. Yeah. I had completely forgotten that because I, and I love being under a deadline. I love the, the professional insanity of like, oh, we have 48 hours for five pages. Let's see how you, if you can solve that. Yeah. But what would I do if I could change the world with a drawing without any assignment? What would I come up with? And the idea of moving was about, you know, like, how can I shake things up? That was the, the main driver. And then presumably, I, I was, I wanted to ask you, 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 you met your wife in New York? Yes. Yeah. She's also and German. She's, I know she is. I, yeah, yeah. I, I thought perhaps you knew one another before, but no, she's a historian and journalist, isn't she? Yes. And, yeah. and also is the editor of a, a magazine yeah. uh, in Germany, which perhaps we'll talk about a little bit later. So you, you came back and you decided that Berlin was the place for you because Berlin is a happening place anyway. So yeah, ha- not only, not only that, but I'm, we're both from the West of Germany. I'm from, from the South, from yeah. Stuttgart. My wife uh, is from Frankfurt and West Germany is like most countries there's a certain way cities look there's like you know, a certain society that i grew up with and berlin having been a divided city mm. berlin is totally different from these places it looks different it smells different the, the whole social fabric is totally different so it really felt like going home in terms of the language and parts of the culture but it really felt like a new front for us instead uh, i don't think i would have gone back to to stuttgart not because i don't like it there but because it felt it would have felt like like a retreat and this really felt like an interesting new place to just like start a new chapter and you obviously i i know from you know watching the little film of you and and seeing various interviews with you online you entered into the world of you started to produce a lot of books a lot of your work is also you you have many prints you have a shop online you are a kind of mini industry in a way uh, i mean under your own banner because I think you work alone in your studio. Is that that's correct, isn't it? No. Well, I work creatively. I work alone, yeah. but by now we're we're actually like a bit of an operation. So it's a, I have uh, four people who work here. Um, ah, really? For different, yeah, yeah. I have a studio manager who really helps me with kind of productions and yeah. exhibitions, and then basically have an in-house gallerist who d- d- deals with with uh, collectors and uh, with the shop. And then there's so much bureaucracy that I actually need a person for um, for just all the the, the organization stuff. Wow. Do you have bodyguards? <laughs> I don't have, I don't have bodyguards. No, it's really, I mean, it's really crazy because I think like, how can, how does this whole thing work out? But of course, it's like the moment you do books, the moment you send things around, it yeah. creates a lot of work. And there was like, when I was in New York, I never worked with anybody because I felt like, no, I, I know how to do everything. But sometimes people would call me up and say, Oh, I saw this drawing. Can I buy it? And I said, no, because I would have had to go to the post office. 
<laughs> and my I, my schedule was so tight. I said everything that requires me to get up from my desk, I can't do. It, everything had to do with like had to be done on the phone and within a three. If somebody called in my portfolio, so my physical portfolio. I said like, no, I can't. Like this, I have the online portfolio. I can't do. I can't mail in things. I don't have time for that. And it was like an interesting experience to say once you actually open up to having smart people around you who are really good at this stuff. Yeah. It actually allows you to do different things. Oh, and yeah. I also find, and this is, yeah, I always, there was never a blueprint for that. I never saw it. Oh, like this is, this is how it's done. But everything, like this whole industry has changed so much that I feel not only in terms of artistically generating your own content, there was a very innovative thing maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. Now I think any artist who isn't able to kind of generate their own stories, I don't think you have much of a career. If you're just a service, just in, in, in quote unquote, just a service illustrator who kind of draws on command. Yeah. I don't know if that's enough today. I would agree with that. I think that so many illustrators, certainly here in the, in the UK, brilliant illustrators, you hardly see their work anymore. I mean, certainly with, say, for example, book covers, which would be an area where many illustrators would have worked with the publisher when they had art directors that were very sympathetic to how the work should be placed on the cover and so forth. It's the illustrators because their work is, is actually obliterated with huge type and quotes and it's just embarrassing and awful. I do feel sorry for that community. You know, they, they, they seem to have just disappeared. There's several very good agents and a lot of them actually work for the states because of, you know, the way in which, um, our industry runs now. It's, it's 24 seven. It's the, you remember the old days when you wanted to look at some illustrations before digital, you, you'd be waiting for an annual to appear. Yes. But now you can yeah. see it the moment it's produced. They, people put their stuff online. Let's talk a bit more specifically about, about your work itself. Uh, I, I've always seen it as conceptual. You've mentioned that already. You know, you're an ideas person and, um, sometimes the idea is very complex, but you manage to also get into a kind of sense of playfulness and wit and fun. And they're very varied. You seem to, to you've not been stuck as with some illustrators with a totally recognizable style you change your style you can work loosely one minute with um as i was said uh, earlier with um coffee from your coffee cup you create these wonderful juxtapositions of uh, a piece of reality with a where you look at it and you turn it into something rather marvelous which is that series that you you did for a long time how would how would you describe your work really if if somebody said well what do you do what does it look like what what what, what are you doing Essentially, it's it's much more maybe closer to graphic design in that regard than to illustration. Yeah, uh, it's really coming up with a concept in the same way a, a graphic designer wouldn't start with a typeface; they start with a concept and then pick the typeface. Yeah, and I start with a concept and then say, what style do I need to bring this to life? And really playing with the style and and seeing, for me, drawing in the wider sense, whether it's pixels on on in Photoshop or uh, messy ink, it's like an instrument. And my my obsession is what kind of music can I squeeze out of that instrument by mixing it, by rearranging it, and seeing you know what else is possible with that, rather than saying I'm the master of the clarinet. Whenever you have clarinet needs, uh, call me up. And I've been fortunate enough to clients or or collectors or so who kind of follow me on that uh, on that path. But for 
I don't know if it's, if I can say I would be bored only in, in, in one style, but I love that mix of concepts and the, the craft has a lot to do with it. It's not that I consider the conceptual part to be the main ingredient, inseparably linked to the execution. And then I also trying to see like, oh, the execution does something maybe unpredictable because I can't draw as well as I hoped and the, drawing looks different than I when I started out and then you have to adjust the concept and these that series of Sunday sketches that you mentioned mm, that, this is all about the unpredictability of the result where I just start with an object start drawing and then it goes in a completely different direction and I end up in a, in a place that I could have not possibly sketched out in my head or on a piece of paper it is very much a, a sort of state of mind I think it's 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 looking and noticing and seeing the possibilities in in the everyday. Whatever you happen to be, something might occur to you. You're looking at it in a curious way, and suddenly there's a curiosity about it, and out of that will come something quite remarkable. I, th I think that seems to be very much the way you appear to think, allowing distraction and and going down rabbit holes and um, seeing everything as a creative opportunity i think there is that kind of energy that you have in your in your work and your approach to it which i i've always admired and in fact you you mentioned just now lego and i think you know you can't get more minimalist than lego can you really i mean it is just but suddenly you look at it and it's a taxi very quickly or it's a piece of paper or it's a ream of paper you know it's it's that way of thinking i think is that that gives to your work its uh surprise element and uh, you know i think you've got now what something like 14 books published uh, i kind of lost count <laughs> well, I, th I think it is and 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 you give talks of course and you've won many awards you, you're a member of alliance graphic international and you were inducted into the art directors hall of fame and just last year you were made a honorary royal designer for industry in london the rsa and you you've had that wonderful documentary so you are a kind of i think the thing about america that is so good is that they really do celebrate people there had you have come to london the british are not the greatest for wanting to celebrate people much it, the, the moment you do something that's great and you get the award everyone's miserable <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it was it was a very it was an amazing <laughs> ceremony it was great fun last year so so uh the, that that whole event no, was, I, think was, we, yeah. I, I think we were all happy i mean that's, i just think it's the culture of britain they don't like people to be too successful they, yeah well that's probably they, similar they, here they it's, it's probably similar in germany yes i remember uh, um hearing an actor talk about going to hollywood and he you know he's a very modest very good actor you know absolutely wonderful and he went out there and he you know he was had, went to parties and then he got to see various people and they'd say to him you know well what sort of thing do you do we like your show reel and so forth and he was very quietly spoken about and then he got feedback saying he didn't seem very confident whereas americans would say i've won this i've won that and they've got it all written on their sleeve and that's you know that's the way it is in america it's a different original notion that in america you can make it doesn't matter where you come from mm -hmm. you can make it over here everyone's you know there's still a terrible class structure system and everybody has to be in, still be in their place. I, I wanted to talk about uh, two projects because you'd, you've done so many, but there are two in particular that I, I think would be worth you talking about. I'll describe the first one, but the second one, which I love, I'd like you to talk about. The first one is 
When you were asked to do the cover for New Yorker magazine during the Fukushima nuclear reactor meltdown in 2011, and they commissioned you to react to that, you produced a cover that at first glance appeared to be just floating cherry blossoms across the front page. But on closer inspection, those blossoms were actually nuclear radiation signs, which was such a, it was one, beautiful, and two, devastatingly sinister in its own way. And I think that's a, that's a perfect example of you know, when you really are on the top level. And then the, it's the interview with Morris Sendak that you heard with Terry Grass on National Public Radio. Do you- could you tell us that story? It's part of the the, the column I was uh, doing for the for the New York Times magazine, and the idea was like to constantly come up with new ideas on on life, like basically illustrated columns that consisted of drawing and writing. And there, there was a time where I basically went through my head and said, like, "Okay, what what the, the Lego piece or so?" Where I felt, "Oh, what kind of experience have I had that I can." squeeze into into columns and at some point i realized it, it, it doesn't really I, i've, I've tell, told all the stories about the things i'm obsessed with like coffee or being stuck in a red-eye flight and so forth yeah i try to open myself up and say like okay what happens around me that's interesting and then we all have these moments with art where we're st- struck by one particular thing you you go to a concert or maybe you go to five concert and there's one that just hits you and there was this one moment where i went to um pick up a kid from a birthday party and i got into the car and i would always like it was here in berlin but i would always listen to to npr to national public radio and it was uh, uh, terry gross interviewing morris sendak and it was like Oh, it's interesting. And I just like had it running in the background. And yeah, I'm in the car and I like to listen to the radio. It's, and I kind of semi pay attention. But this was one of these conversations where all of a sudden I really got drawn into their conversation and they talk about his new book. And it's like one of these classic interviews, uh, uh, him uh, plugging his new, his new project, but they know each other. And at some point they talk about life and how he's old and then he talks about death and how he sees more and more of his friends dying and how he feels alone being left back but on the other end how he has a new outlook on life being old and amazingly then he talks about like how people who are religious have it easier because they have a basically a, a grid to hold on to where like an atheist has to kind of like solve all of these <laughs> things and so it goes from like a funny little banter about a new children's book into such an incredibly deep and heartfelt mm-hmm. conversation and at the end they basically say goodbye to each other on the radio because he says this is probably the last interview we do to, together it was like absolutely shockingly beautiful mm. and it was and when i grew up with with sendak books of course i never i never met him uh, but it was like something that was just a reality of of my life and this just came to t- totally out of left field what i then try to do in this interview is to basically illustrate not the interview but but this this idea how i'm slowly being drawn into this interview so it is about sendak it's about what he says, but ultimately it's about something that for me is the, the very essence of art is how you're basically drawn out of life into a moment of like music, conversation, visuals, elevated on another level, basically so you're being plucked away. But on the other hand, you feel you're so much closer to life through art than you could possibly be when you just 
walk down the street. So in a way, if like that, if this happens, this is like the this is the white whale, probably the holy grail for every artist is to create a moment where you manage to do something with the, uh, like that with the audience. Also, like the, the humility that this can only be planned to a certain degree. Morris Sendak is an incredible artist. Mm. Terry Gross is probably one of the best interviewers out there. Yes. But that there sometimes is a golden moment where things happen that go beyond good craft. And uh, so the, the, the illustrated version I did. So I, I, I had done an interview with, with Terry Gross a while back. So I had her contact and I asked her whether we could use the, the voiceover. And so essentially the piece music and the interview. And then it's basically stills, just black and white uh, pencil drawings that illustrate me in a car. And then all these characters from the Sendak book uh, come up. Yes, they embrace you, don't they? Slowly yeah. but surely. All of yeah. his creatures from his books. And it's so touching. And I know that when it was originally published, you got a fantastic reaction uh, from it. And people, you know, were, I think, in tears. And, and it, it is very moving. And I thought to myself, this is a very... It's not even animated. It's really stills. And yeah, really yeah. It's, stills. It, they call it an animation, but it's a series of pencil stills, very lovingly, lightly drawn, um, with you just in your car, you know, absorbing this this wonderful interview. <laughs> um, I, actually, I've, what one of the things that I, I, I um, it struck me about you because I've watched some of your talks, which. You know, you're a natural talker and very funny. And I thought, well, actually, this reminds me of a, a, a kind of stand up, really, but a stand up with a difference because, you know, stand ups here or comedy duos used to have, you know, they used, they'd have someone that fed the lines and the other one that cracked the jokes. But you, you've got your own, uh, comedy act because, you know, you start to delivering and it's your, often your illustrations that provide the punchlines. And it reminded me, actually, I suddenly remembered a sketch that Jerry Seinfeld did a long time ago, which I don't know if you've ever, um, heard. It's, um, he was very young and it's called the washing machine is the nightclub of clothes. And he talks about when, all the washings put into the machine and the bubbles start to, you know, bubble away and it starts spinning around and the smelly old socks start get freshened up and they, they start getting on down with the bras and the underwear and they're really enjoying it and it's whizzing away. And then suddenly the cycle ends, but always one of the socks hides <laughs> inside. And he, he turned this into a long, and I thought that's, that would be perfect, a perfect thing for you, actually, because I, I, I could see it as a drawing as he was talking when I, I, I happened to fall on it the other day. No, no, he, he is, he is absolutely, he is absolutely brilliant. No, I, I felt maybe that came from, uh, just like being at a number of design conferences and sitting to, I sometimes find it a little shocking how graphic designers who are supposed to be expert communicators sometimes can give very, very, very long talks. Yeah. Uh, that don't, that, let's say could use a bit of editing. And yeah. when I gave my first talks uh, in New York for, for AIGA, I was so insecure in terms of language that I planned the entire thing. I planned like every slide and what I would say with every slide because I was so freaked out that I would just like not be able to, to find the words. And I realized at some point that it actually makes life better. And what I was saying earlier, this, this, that when you 
giving a presentation is like a cartoon. You have the verbal element, which you're saying, and you have the visual element in the back. And you can, if you just, there's nothing more boring if you have a red car on a, a, a on a slide and you say, oh, and this is a red, red car. car I yeah. designed. You say, yes, I, everybody in the audience can probably see that. And if you say, this is my new project, this is what you say, and then you have a red car, so people assume that you had a red car as a new product. And then this tension is actually something beautiful to play with. It also makes for, for a much shorter talk. And eventually through, I, I saw Zay Frank at a, at a design in Daba in South Africa doing an insanely incredible talk where he then started to disagree with his slides <laughs> or contradict with his slides or basically the slide would contradict what he said, which, you know, like that meant that he had to really had to kind of like click secretly and then the slide would go on. And as he was saying, the slide was <laughs> like basically running a second. And I realized, that, okay, it, it's another art form. The yeah. huge disadvantage of doing that is it requires an insane amount of practice. Yeah. And it really, it, it is a little bit like stand-up, but I just... Uh, um, now I actually like like improvising a little bit more because it's unsustainable because yeah. to do basically like a, I did a TED talk that's I think 12 minutes long, but it's like half a year of writing and uh, rehearsing until you really have every beat exactly. It's important to at which comma in the sentence you switch the slides, but it's it, it's fun to do every once in a while. Yeah, more. yeah. <laughs> Now, your your wife, uh, Lisa, is editor of uh, El Kunz magazine. Do you contribute to that? I'm, I'm, I've done I've done a few covers for her. Is she difficult? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, she's uh, she's no, no, no. It, it, but the, the the thing is, I I read, I show her a lot of my art to just ask yeah. her, like, what do you think? What do you see? Do you get it? And uh, she's an invaluable. There, I have like a, like two three people. Uh, Nicholas Blackman, her, and and then maybe one or two people uh, every once in a while that I constantly share work with. So, because you'll uh, get an honest response, you won't get. Well, not only an honest response, but it's like a precise response, really on the question that's like when I talk with Nicholas, it, the 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 difficulty is for feedback is that people talk about the right thing, not whether the drawing is finished, but if you ask about the concept or the rendering. The feedback needs to, the other person needs to know what you're after. Otherwise, you just like end up talking about background colors. I know the background color in the sketch doesn't matter. It's just like I had a piece, blue piece of paper. It's not relevant. And so it takes sometimes years to develop a language with another person. And I think having these kind of artistic relationships with people that you can discuss your work with is one of the most fundamentally important assets you can have, I think, in any creative profession, whether you're a writer, artist, photographer, or so forth. And this is like something that takes forever to build. Those sort of relationships are really important. I wanted to ask you, it's about your children, Arthur, Gustav, and Fritz. Yes. yes. They're now teenagers, I, I yes, think, yes. aren't they? They must have grown up. So um, gone are those days when you were going around on the on the subway in in New York, yes. keeping them you know, happy. There, any signs that they're vaguely going in your direction or your wife's direction? Well, yes and absolutely no. None of them is is drawing a lot, but Arthur is actually uh, studying to become a civil engineer for traffic. So he's oh, doing wow. exactly what my dad yeah. uh, did, even though he never he never met him um, because my dad unfortunately <laughs> passed away. But but he he was the one from from the subway book, and he's technically studying subway, which wow. of course makes me very happy. And we totally share, and this is where kind of the graphic design aspect definitely comes in. Like we share this 
insane obsession with maps, information, yeah. display. Uh, so it's not so much like our fascination that, that we share and that we like kind of shared from him being a very early age was never so much about the machinery, but about the logic behind public transport. Yeah. It explains a city. It, it makes you, gives you a grasp of a city. And yeah, so, so as far as that goes, I feel very, very close to his, to his professional choice. Okay. Just a couple more questions. You, you've obviously, you know, you, to digital quite a lot. I mean, I know that you, you know you you would draw freehand exactly as you would on paper and so forth, and then you would transfer it and be redrawing, depending on what you wanted to achieve, whether it's something you know hyper finished or or not, or getting the colours right. I watched you um, working on that ma- on the um, the magazine for I think New Yorker about virtual reality that yes, one yeah. which is fantastic and i love the way that you you do these you often do these little things that are, that kind of hark back in a funny sort of way to cinema do you know these glass paintings yes you yeah, know, yeah, for yeah. example like like the beginning of awesome wells's citizen kane there's a there's a St. Simeon sitting on the hill, but it's actually a glass painting that that, that he's put in front of the camera. But you did that wonderful one where you were, I think, either in a taxi or a car, and you drew um, the cyclist. And yeah, there was an accident. Getting the angle just right so that it was touching the ground. This cyclist was following me all the way for many blocks. I thought that was that was brilliant. So you use, you, you actually use um, technology in various ways. But I'm just wondering um, what you think about the elephant in the room is, you know, AI. What's your view of that? Well, it's 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 definitely it will be here. It it will disrupt what we do in an in a very very profound way, and I fear not necessarily in a good way. Mm. The the two big issues is the one is they're mostly based on large language on these like large models that are trained with art without people's consent. And this is highly unethical and horrible. And I hope that there will be some legal stop on it. And this is just like, 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 a, like a moral professional question where it's just essentially it's stealing art in a, in a sophisticated way that makes it less obvious. But I think, and so this is kind of just like the moral aspect. The other aspect is that it is, of course, not intelligent. It is a predictive model. So it takes what's done before and remixes it. And yeah. there's always this thing where people say, oh, there's no original idea and everything has been done before. And I feel this is usually people who have never done something original who say that there's nothing original. And yes, there are new ideas. And even though there's just 12 notes in a musical scale, people still write new music. For me, it's also the, the question of intent. I'm sure AI can do an ama- can do amazing art. There's no questions about that. Or like, like, this is not, maybe not amazing, but visually stunning, impressive yeah. things. Yeah. Because if it's fed with good art, it can produce good art. But for me, artistic intent is incredibly important. And a sunset can be more impressive than the greatest Michelangelo, but the sun doesn't care the same way a computer doesn't care about what AI image it spits out. And I think the whole prompting thing is ridiculous. And so for me, that the drawing is made by a human is a crucial part of the job. Yeah. Not of maybe not signage in an airport there. It's just about how do I find the bathroom? But when I put a painting on my wall, it's really, for me, it's a conversation with the person who, who created it. And AI won't do that. By definition, it can't do that. And uh, that's why I, I think for me, it will never replace art. 
But of course, it could change audiences that at some point people maybe don't care about it anymore. Maybe no. when you go to Japan, there's like, it's totally normal in a lot of even not so terrible restaurants to order on an iPad. I guess the audience has changed it. For me, the idea, I hate the self-checkout lines at supermarkets. I always go to the ones with, with people, yeah. but maybe in 20 years, people are so used to it that they don't care about that anymore. And maybe at some point people don't care with, with art, whether it's made by humans, but at least for me, I know that it's not, it's like the idea of like a robot kissing. Yeah. Maybe you can train a robot to physically kiss better than a person, but I still <laughs> care about like a kiss coming from a human being. Don't and all, uh, yes. even, even if somebody said, no, physically, believe me, it's like a hundred to 20% better than a human kiss. Like, yes, but. It's not the human kiss. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, look, this is the last question, really. What advice would you give to a, a budding student that would love to follow in your footsteps? Bearing in mind what, what you just said about the possibilities of AI. No, I, I think in the end, almost every single problem is being solved sitting at a drawing desk. Every designer's problem. And I think the, the one thing that, in my opinion, cannot be taught is the excitement about producing work and the, the ignorance of the frustration that comes with it. The frustration of mm. producing work that's not as good as you might hope it would be. The frustration of your work not being received in a way that it, you might hope that you might struggle to monetize, even if uh, your, your ideas, even if they're received favorably by an audience. All these questions there relevant and they're especially for people starting out for me for everybody else there's something you struggle with and i think the answer is always in drawing and i think embracing the practice of drawing of designing of doing photography it always comes down to that and it is a mentally very very um uh, challenging job I think it's also becoming so much more difficult with all the with all the things you have to do. And the only thing that will save you there is, uh, is not art, but it's like talking to other people, finding a community of like like minded people where you discuss how to write an invoice, what to charge, uh, how to get out of a slump, how to find your audience, create a community. So. I think spending a lot of time at your desk and drawing. And on the other hand, doing the effort, whether it's online or in real life, creating a community. These are the two pillars. I think when, when, these, when you enjoy these two things, I think there's a good chance uh, one will succeed without spending a lot of time working and without having some people to bounce your, your questions off. I think it's very difficult. Well, that's, I think that's very sound advice and very good advice. Christoph Nyman, thank you very much for sharing your RDI insights. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been great fun and I'll speak to you soon.